Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Thank you, Darrow and Cindy, and Happy New Year to everyone joining us, whether you're here on Zoom or you're listening over to ACB Radio or downloading and listening via your favorite podcast player. Um, that one's a shout out to the future when this is made available as a podcast. Good e- evening, everyone. My name is Clark Rockfall. I am the Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs for the American Council of the Blind, and we have a very special program for you here this evening. We will be discussing the final rule from the Department of Transportation regarding traveling by air with service animals. Uh, This is something near and dear to many of our hearts and wet noses, um, and especially to those who are members of Guide Dog Users um, Incorporated, one of our ACB affiliates. And here this evening, uh, one of our panelists, it's Sarah Calhoun. Good evening. Hello, Clark. Thank you. Nice to be here. And Sarah, what is your role for GDUI? I am president of GDUI. I was just elected in July of last year, 2020. Great. And we also have the advocacy chair for GDUI, no stranger to ACB, Melanie Brunson. Melanie, good evening. Good evening, Clark, and thanks very much for having me. Absolutely. And Melanie, when you were still wearing your ACB hat, was this a hot button issue? Um, oh, yeah. It, yeah. It's been an issue for a long time. Yeah. And it will uh, be. A and lot it doesn't seem like it's going to go anywhere, right? No. That's so in addition to Sarah and Melanie from GDUI, we also have representation from both ACB's Transportation and Environmental Access Committees. Uh, it's hard to introduce one without introducing the other. And because Sheila Styron always gets, uh, you know, the short end of the stick when we go alphabetically, Sheila, I'll introduce you first. Good evening. Hi there, Clark. Hi, everybody. It's great to be here. Um, I want to say that um, I do wear a transportation committee hat right now, but I'm a past president of Guide Dog Uses Incorporated. And uh Becky Davidson was my vice president, and she went on to be president. President, yeah. <laughs> and Becky, how are you doing Absolutely. this evening? I'm doing well, thanks, Clark. It's great to be here with everybody. Um, and in addition to being past president of GDUI, I spent 21 years doing advocacy and outreach for Guiding Eyes for the Blind. So I've done a lot of air traveling and been involved with uh, the DOT air transportation forums and the uh, TSA Coalition on Disability. So this is on we go. (laughs) So I just learned something new here this evening. And um, for folks listening who do not know me, I am blind, but I'm a cane traveler. I have two dogs, but they are both most certainly pets. Um, And there was be no mistaking that if you ever meet them. I did not realize we had such a GDUI I, I want to say it's like royalty here. So many uh, current and past leaders of such a strong ACB affiliate. So thank you to all of you for joining us here this evening. 
Um, and, and you're all guide dog users as well. Um, and I guess I want to start with with Becky here. Before we get into this final rule, uh, Becky, in the past, what has it been like for you traveling by air with a service animal? Generally, um, generally, it's it's been pretty calm. I have been fortunate enough to have not had a lot of negative experiences with uh, so-called emotional supports or irresponsibly handled pets in the airport. I mean, a little bit. For the most part, um, there's been that needing to educate people sometimes um, or explain what you know what my right and my responsibility are. Um, but for the most part, it's gone it's gone pretty smoothly, um, as smoothly as any air travel goes, if you know what I mean. Um, but generally. Um, I've had experiences where people have been absolutely wonderful. I've had a couple of experiences uh, where actually a passenger in first class insisted on trading seats with me. And uh, that only happened once. And unfortunately, it was a really short flight. It would have been nice if it was a longer (laughs) flight. But, but, um, you know, those kinds of things happen once in a while. And sometimes you, you, you get to your seat and the person who's assigned to the seat next to you has a fit because they don't want to be near a dog. And the flight attendants generally try to work it out uh, and generally do. Um, you know, you meet all kinds of people when you travel a lot. And some uh, some experiences are negative and some are, are really positive. And I would say on the whole, I've had more positive than negative. <clears throat> all right. And Melanie, has that been similar to your experiences? Yes. For the most part, I think my experiences have been positive. And uh, although I have in recent years had more encounters with yappy and fairly aggressive dogs than uh, than I used to. I think I've, I've noticed that more often. Um, and dogs on flexi leashes that wanted to visit my dog and couldn't understand why I wasn't happy with the idea, things like that. But that's been more recent um, uh, I think the numbers of incidents like that have grown in recent years. Yeah. And Sheila, have you found airline <laughs> employees to be very accommodating when traveling with a service animal, when flying with a service animal? I have, Clark. I find that when you get to the gate in an airport, it's sort of the gate crew's little thiefdom. And when you're on an airplane, there are a lot of things that if something does go wrong, you're going to have to deal with it later because they're pretty much in charge. So I've always found it a good policy to be very friendly to people when I'm flying. And I've had, um, I've had for the most part, um, really quite positive experiences with airline staff. Uh, a, f- a funny experience that I had that I enjoy sharing is once I was in line for um, uh, a flight, and I think it was, pretty sure it was Southwest Airlines, and I was in line and a staff, and this was probably seven or eight years ago, so not super recently, Um but I had an employee come up to me when I was kind of far back in the line. And they said, you know, when you get up to the front, you're going to have to show some papers, you know, to um, 
you know, for your talk. And I said, well, no, that, that isn't really the case, but I'll just talk to them about it when I get up to the front. So I got up to the front of the line and I didn't even have a chance to say anything. And the employee behind the counter looked at me and says, oh, oh, good. This is a real service animal. She goes, last week I had a 15 minute long argument with somebody who's trying to convince me that their bowl of goldfish was you know, we're Aww. service animals. <laughs> so we do have amusing things that happen. And for the most part, I, I, when I was president of GDUI, I certainly worked with a lot of people who had some horrendous experiences traveling. But personally, I just haven't, as Becky and Melanie. And Sarah, similar question to you. I asked Sheila about mm-hmm. um, airline and airport employees. And everyone's kind of touched on this, but I guess for you personally, Sarah, how have your experiences been with other passengers when traveling with a service animal? Oh, uh, other passengers, they uh, normally my experience has has been very good, you know, Um, especially if I'm flying by myself. Um, I have a tendency uh, for more people to want to talk to me. And also if they're sitting next to me, um, of course I, you know, tell them if my dog bothers you, let, please let me know. And people have been very nice, very kind, but you get those that um, when we're taking off or landing or somewhere during the flight, they just have to bend over and pet your dog. Cause they said, Oh, I think your dog is a little nervous. And <laughs> so, but uh, like Sheila, I think, you know, being very kind, pleasant, it, it, uh, and then you just kind of deal with things later. Um, but, uh, normal, I have had a, a very good experience. There, there's been a few times in the airport with the yappy little dogs, um, but nothing major, really nothing major. And I'm sure many of our, of our listeners can relate to these experiences. <laughs> That they um, can. Mel- yeah. <laughs> Melanie, over the years, as, as you've been advocating for ACB, for GDUI, and as the, the service animal issue has arisen, um, from what I'm hearing from our, our panelists here is that they and their service animals are treated very well by airlines and other passengers. You know, maybe folks um, aren't as familiar with proper etiquette around service animals, but it sounds like for the most part, everyone's friendly, everyone wants to be helpful. So where does the issue come in? Why why do we need, or why has it been necessary that over the years we've had final enforcement statements and now a final rule from the Department of Transportation if the process, process has gone so smoothly? <laughs> well, I think, like I said, um, when I, I was talking and others alluded to, more and more often, people with service animals started flying. And as people with service animals started flying, one, two things happened. First off, the number of service animals that are being used for a variety of uh, disability accommodations has grown. And with the growth of the number of animals, the types of animals that people wanted to claim as service animals has started to grow. And a lot of them are not as well trained as guide dogs. Um, But so people have had some issues 
in identifying, first of all, what, it, what constitutes a service animal. And wanting to be helpful, they have admitted um, animals that they weren't quite sure about, but didn't want to be offensive. And there started to be some problems. But also, as people started to see service animals on airplanes and in public places, they began to think, well, gee, gosh, it would be really cool to take my pet. And I could say that it's an emotional support animal or a psychiatric service animal or that I have another kind of disability because you don't have to identify what the disability is. And um, so I'll just try to see if I can do this. So what we have had, and I know people who have done it, so I'm not making a generalization. But what has happened is that people have started to figure out that they could take pets on and claim that they were service dogs. And as that has started to happen, um, there have been incidents where animals that weren't trained or were maybe somewhat trained but weren't used to flying and got um upset by the experience, got aggressive with, uh, with other passengers. So we have started to find um, instances where airlines have wanted and the government has felt obliged to respond to their needs and try to be a bit more restrictive and pull back on some of the, um, the allowances that they had made before to try to accommodate as many people as possible without uh, being uh, overly restrictive. And hence, the government has been trying to figure out what the, uh, how to respond to both the needs of the disability community and the airline industry, as well as the passengers who use that, who travel with people with disabilities and to meet everybody's needs in a, in a balanced manner. And thank you for that, Melanie. Um, does anyone else have anything that they would like to add? Uh, and oh, again, this the is Sarah. Yes, please, Sarah. Sarah. Um, just quickly, I, uh, Melanie mentioned it that um, uh, this has happened several times, whether I'm uh, flying or uh, at a store, restaurant, etc. People will say, "Oh my gosh, you know, where can I get one of those harnesses so I can take my dog into the restaurant?" Or you know, and so that has, as we know, has been um, a problem. And then, of course, selling these fake certificates for an emotional dog, emotional support dog, and a harness and um, tags that say they're a service animal, but. Mm-hmm. Yes, this is Melanie. I actually had that happen to me when I was working at ACB. A lady, I was just about to enter the building and uh, was coming back from a meeting and a woman stopped me. Can I ask you a quick question? And I said, of course. Mm -hmm. And she did the same thing. Where can I get a harness like that? I've got everything else I need, but I need a harness like that. I said, well... <laughs> if you'd like to fill out an application for a guide dog and submit it to one of the guide dog schools, but you will have to get a doctor's to certify that you're blind. <laughs> oh my, the lengths I'm... that some people will go through. Yes, Sheila. 
I guess I, I'm maybe going to turn the conversation just a little bit and say that, you know, that has been an emerging issue and was very proud during my time as, as president of GDUI um, and VP before that to have worked um, in coalition with a number of other organizations on rewriting the service animal definition. And we started in 2000 and it came to fruition about eight years later. And we were so proud that, that the only animal that was now identified as a service animal was a dog, although businesses were asked to give special consideration to miniature horses acting as guide animals if it wouldn't represent you know, an undue burden to businesses to to go down that road because some of us did know some very responsible miniature horse trainers at the time. Um, and so that was such a positive direction that the DOJ, the Civil Rights Division took. And when we embarked on this latest journey with the Department of Transportation, we thought, oh, great, you know, they're, they're going to um, take emotional service animals, emotional support animals out of the mix. And, you know, this will be a step in the right direction. We asked them to harmonize the definition with that of the Department of Justice. And we thought, oh, we're really on the right track. And I, I just... I hope I'm not jumping the gun too much to say that I'm just so disappointed that they also took a step backwards in asking us to turn in written attestations of our dog's behavior, their health, all of these things that are not required under the ADA and under the Civil Rights Division of, of um, dealing with the definition and how we need to present ourselves when we enter places of public accommodation. I feel like for me, we were talking about earlier, it hasn't been that terrible with the emotional support animals, but I think it's going to be extremely burdensome for me personally to have to fill out those forms. And for some people who aren't computer savvy or have people to help them, that, that it may make them miss flights. I'm just and really concerned. And Sheila, we will we will get to those concerns. Um, I guess before we jump into the uh, a dive here into the final rule, uh, the last year the Department of Transportation issued a final enforcement statement, um, and some of the items in this final rule carried over from that final enforcement statement, and these are issues raised by. ACB members, GDUI members, as well as the, the broader disability community. And one of those is that airlines, um, here in the final rule, the Department of Transportation has continued to allow airlines to bar passage to animals, individual animals that display um, aggressive behavior or could pose a harm to airline employees or other passengers. And I'm curious to hear the, the group's thoughts about that. Um, is that. Is that something that you all agree with? Does that sound like that is in, in line with the ADA? 
Yes, aggression isn't tolerated. At, and based off of the behavior of a specific animal, correct? Yes. Because that also goes into a second item that airlines will continue to be prohibited to ban an entire breed of animal. Um, so, for example, uh, specifically, Delta Airlines has uh, implemented a basically a pit bull ban, much like uh, some cities and jurisdictions around the country. Um, the Department of Transportation in the final enforcement statement said that breed bans were not allowed. And in the final rules, they continue to prohibit um, banning entire breeds of animals. And I, I feel like those two are kind of tied together. You know, if you're going to ban an entire breed, you're not making an assessment based off of the individual behavior right. of an animal. Absolutely. Right. Mm -hmm. I agree uh, with Sarah, that. any thoughts on those two mm -hmm. items? Yeah, that, that is kind of a tough one, but when, now that they're uh, dealing with service dogs and not animals <laughs> and that, um, no matter what the breed is, if they have been properly trained, then there should not be an issue with our dogs. Um, on a side note, uh, uh, I would be a little afraid of someone with a pit bull, but there again, it goes into the training. So I think if, if the dogs are trained properly and they are an illegitimate service dog, um, if they've been owner trained or come from an, a certified, um, I mean, I'm sorry, an accredited guide dog school and they act like they are supposed to and do their work, then, then I am, I'm fine with that. Well, I think, you know, one of the things, this is Melanie. And one of the things that I saw in looking through some of the comments was that some people were concerned um, that, that, that dogs were being misidentified as being a dangerous breed when they really weren't. So that could pose a problem as well if uh, if someone isn't as familiar with their dog breeds as they think they are and uh, somebody's dog gets mislabeled. I think that this is Becky. I think the focus here is and should remain on the behavior and the handling of, of the dog rather than on, on a specific breed. Um, I think we've all heard pit bull stories that you know, give us nightmares, but that's, those are, those are things that have probably happened, but there are certainly well-trained, well-handled pit bulls that serve well as, as service animals. I don't, I don't know of any that are guide dogs, but uh, there are other legitimately trained uh, service dogs out there who, who fit the definition and who, um, who act accordingly, who, who behave accordingly in public. And Becky, I think you, you raised a, a good point there that gets us to the how the Department of Transportation is defining a service animal. Uh, so a DOT now defines a service animal as a dog only, um, only a dog that is individually trained to perform tasks or work to benefit a person with a disability, emotional support animals will no longer be considered service animals and psychiatric service animals are required to be treated like service animals. 
Um, so there may not be uh, you know, pit bulls or other breeds who have been trained to be guide dogs, but they could be a psychiatric service animal or some other form of service animal. Um, and they, they need to be treated the same way. So uh, any thoughts from the group on the, the definitions? And I guess I'll start with Sheila, because you mentioned with the ADA <laughs> mo- modernization that dogs and miniature horses were included. Well, now we're, we're a bit more restrictive. Are we concerned that the, the, the definition is getting tighter about what is and what is not a service animal now that we're dogs only? No, I, I believe everyone is very happy about that. I, I maybe shouldn't have muddied the waters by throwing in the, the um, miniature horses were not, they were, they were included only as a, a suggestion that business owners, if they could accommodate them, I don't really... Um, think there has been too much industry-wide unhappiness with um, the definition. Um, I don't know how many people out there are now working with miniature horses and and flying. Um, I haven't heard any dissatisfaction on that score, but I imagine if there is a well-trained miniature horse um, handler out there who wants to fly that, that that is sort of sad and I have to say that I hadn't really thought about that much until you just brought it up but I think we're we're pretty happy with the idea that they have adopted that definition so that we can all be on the same page you know life's pretty confusing in our country with different definitions for public access for housing and for transportation so now that transportation and doj public access definitions will be the same i think it'll be a lot it may help us moving forward educating the public and be a lot less confusing for business owners and everyone thanks sheila does anyone else have thoughts on the the definitions provided by the Department of Transportation. I think when we, this is Becky, I think when we all submitted comments, this was one of the areas that we really felt strongly that we wanted that definition to be brought in line with the ADA definition. And they did do that. But as we'll be talking about shortly, they did miss the mark somewhere else. That is very true. And I guess one thing I'd like to point out, a lot of the things that we're talking about so far are requirements for the airlines, right? Um, Like airlines are prohibited from having uh, restrictions solely based on breed. Airlines are required to treat psychiatric service animals the same as service animals. Um, These next items are not requirements, but they are what airlines are allowed to do um, in the process of a person with a disability flying with a service animal um, completing their flight. So the Department of Transportation has created two attestation forms. And these forms, airlines may choose to use them or not, they are not required to use them, but if the airline is choosing to uh, use written documentation, then they must use the Department of Transportation forms. Does that make sense? 
Um, I hope so. We might get some questions on it later. So airlines are not mandated to use forms, but if they decide to use forms, then they have to use the Department of Transportation forms. And these forms created by Department of Transportation um, have the passenger attest to uh, the health of their service animal, uh, as well as its behavior, and only for long flights over eight hours, whether the animal is capable of relieving itself in a sanitary sanitary fashion. Um, and Sheila, you've already touched on these forms. So I guess before getting into the content of the forms, Sheila, do you want to reiterate your thoughts on um, having written attestation? I guess the main points I would, I would like to focus on are that when we're going out in public for public access, businesses are allowed to ask us two questions. And I wouldn't mind at all if the airlines asked us those same questions. But we've fought long and hard as people with disabilities who work with guide dogs and other kinds of service dogs to not have to provide written documentation anytime we want to go into a boutique or a restaurant. And I, I feel very um, unhappy about having to do it to fly if airlines do move forward with requiring this documentation. And I feel like it's a step backwards from the rights that we earned our civil rights with the Americans with Disabilities Act, that all of a sudden we have to fill out these forms. It, it seems completely unfair. I remember reading when all of this was moving along, but not quite here yet, that, that it wasn't the people flying with service animals who had caused the airlines to, to take this position and consider this as a possible regulation. Um, it wasn't us. So why now are we the ones who may be forced to have to, to go forward with the onerous task of filling out these forms, dealing with difficult online uh, forms or having to get people to help us or wait in line for a longer time, maybe missing a flight. It's, it's just such a blow if this comes to pass. And I'll add that if, if a flight is booked uh, more than two days or 48 hours in advance of the departure, then airlines are allowed to require that form uh, 48 hours in advance of the flight. Airlines may also, I mean, if, if you book your flight in within that 48-hour window, so a, uh, a real short turnaround, then airlines cannot require you to submit the forms in advance. However, for all passengers traveling with a service animal, airlines are allowed to require the form uh, to be presented at the departure gate uh, before boarding. And the forms, uh, airlines can only require the forms to be completed once per trip. So not for every flight, but for every, uh, shall we say, booking or round trip. Uh, Sarah or Melanie, anything that you would like to add about the, the written attestation forms? Uh, this 
Sarah. Um, yeah, this, yeah, these. It, this is kind of a um, kind of a big deal, I guess, that we're all facing. Like uh, was mentioned that you know it was because people trying to pass their puppy, their dog off as an emotional support dog so they could have them fly. Then, and the problems that it caused um, is making us having to complete these forms. Um, I'm not 100% against the form, but there's several things on the forms that I am against. Um, mm-hmm. They want the, the, the dog's name several times. I don't know, at least probably eight times. I, I don't think that is, uh, should be required. Um, a lot of us know that when we're out in public, um, and it's up to the handler's choice if they want to tell somebody their dog's name, but it's uh, it is very distracting and to the dog and to the handler if someone else calls your dog by their name. So I could see where the possibility that might come about from maybe the airline uh, attendants or something. Sarah, um, what what is the potential harm know. in others knowing? your service animal's name. Um, you said it could be distracting to you or the, or the dog mm-hmm. um, in an airport or in any mm-hmm. um, public setting where you are navigating and traveling. What is the potential harm or risk to others knowing your animal's name? Um, if you're wherever, if you're wherever you're walking through a building, going upstairs or wherever you are and you and your dog are working, you've given that command forward and then you want them to find the elevator or whatever. If somebody calls your dog's name, they're going to lose concentration. And therefore that is putting, um, you and your dog in unsafe, a possible unsafe situation. They, they might miss seeing that car coming or across the parking lot or miss a step or something like that. So it's very distracting to the dog and the dog and the handler, they work as one and they just need to be communicating kind of back and forth to each other as they are working, um, you know, navigating through what, wherever area they're in. So thank you but, for that explanation. Um, yes. Yeah, so, and another thing I didn't, and on the form, they want your veterinarian's name, phone number. And I think because uh, in the event something were to happen, then I don't know if it's the airlines, I guess they would, could call your vet to see, is your dog have the rabies vaccination by this date? And I know from my vet, and I would imagine several other veterinarian offices, they won't give out any information about your dog unless they get the okay from the owner. So I, I, those forms are a little um, kind of confusing. And I think, you know, like Becky said, this kind of missed the mark on some things. I'm sure it'll come up in, in questions later on, but any other comments from Melanie or Becky about the written attestation forms from the department of transportation? Sure. This is Melanie. And, um, I think, you know, my my concern, some of my concerns people have already mentioned. Um, I, I just I want to go back for a second to the issue of them requiring that you give the dog's name on the form, because 
the name of your dog is is central to the command structure. So the first thing you say when you want to give a dog a command is, you know, the dog's name. And then you tell them what it is you want them to do. And when you're in a situation like an air, on an airplane, um, when the flight crew knows the dog's name, they have the ability to take control away from you. And that does two things. One, like uh, Sarah said, it distracts the dog. But two, it, it frankly puts you in a situation where you're violating their very rule. Because in another section of the rule, it says that the dog is supposed to be, that the, the handler is supposed to maintain control of the dog at all times. And if someone deliberately takes control of that dog, then you're, you have to either be able to reestablish it or, um, or if you feel like they're doing it and taking advantage of a, of a, a situation where they have the power to do that, then you might feel unwilling but um, powerless to do something about it. And so I just think that it's a, uh, it, while you might argue that there is some justification for attestations regarding issues that are related to health and safety, I don't see any need for that one and I particularly don't see that it's required that you fill it in so many times on the form. Um, the other thing is that this form that we're talking about and you alluded to it Clark it's required every time you travel so every time you make a reservation if it involves two flights there and two flights back you only have to do the form once but every time you book, when they started doing forms a couple of years ago, you could give them to the airline and have them keep it on file for a year. And it would apply to all of your trips on that airline. But now it's a new form for every time you, you book a trip. And I just think that that is overly burdensome uh, as, it, as it stands. Thanks, Melly. And Becky, you wanted to add something on this topic? All right. Uh, not hearing Becky, I will move on. And Melanie, I think you'd already touched on this. Okay, I'm sorry, Clark. I was un I was muted and I didn't realize it. Not a problem. <laughs> um, I, I agree with Sheila. Um, I, I kind of feel like one of the basic tenets of the ADA, and I know we're not really, I, I know this is not a requirement of the ACAA in that, but one of the basic tenets was that we did not have to prove our um, need for or or want for a service dog. We did not have to prove that we had a disability that would be benefited by having a service dog. Um, and and basically, I feel like I'm being told. And, and you know, I never objected to those two questions that the ADA allows. And I think something similar to that would certainly be okay for the airlines to ask. Um, but I, I really object to having to go the extra mile with information that, that you know, they may not need um, and that maybe they shouldn't have. I, I totally agree with Sarah and Melanie about the dog's name. Um, and I just find it concerning that, you know, that we're kind of going down this road through through no cause of our own. Yeah. I'll, I imagine this will will remain an issue here 
in, into the future. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, it's not going to be something that we're going to solve in this conversation. But again, thank you all for sharing your perspectives, especially on that uh, difficult aspect of this final rule. Um, a couple more items here before we open it up to Q&A from our uh, large audience. And these more go into uh, what else airlines are allowed to require. So an airline may require that a passenger be limited to two, only two service animals. Um, Melanie used to work with the Blinded Veterans Association. And, you know, in, in that role, did, did you work with or did you know individuals that may have more than one service animal? did not personally know anyone who had more than one, but I think that there are, for instance, there I know of people, for instance, who had um, a guide dog and a PTSD dog. Um, so a psychiatric service dog could be used in conjunction with a dog that um, that guided or was a hearing dog or that sort of thing. Um, and, and I know of people who have dogs that um, spell each other kind of like a interpreters do. Mm -hmm. a, a dog will work um, and serves someone for a couple of hours and then need a break. And so they'll use another, another one um, for things like physical tasks, for instance. Um, so I think that there are some instances, although I've never personally known anyone who required um, two animals to accompany them in their travels, but I have heard about the possibility does, that does exist. Okay. I do know of one person who has a guide dog and also has a diabetic alert dog that alerts to blood sugar mm -hmm. <clears throat> ah, that would be another instance. Yeah, mm -hmm. guide dog is a normal sized guide dog, and the the diabetic alert dog is a small dog that could be even in a carrier. Mm -hmm. Okay, Clark, this is Sheila Young. I want to yes. let you know it is six forty five. Yes, thank you, Sheila. We'll go a, a little bit more <laughs> here. Um, so, other things that the DOT is allowing again allowing airlines to require if they so choose. Um, airlines may require that a service animal uh, fit within the footprint <laughs> of the passenger's uh, seat. So the, the seat space you know, under the, in front of the passenger seat. Uh, also, they may, airlines may require for the service animal to be leashed, harnessed, or tethered at all times. Um, curious to hear the group's thoughts and Sheila Styron, um, any thoughts on those two items? Well, as I mentioned earlier, a, a lot of times what happens on an airplane really becomes uh, completely under you know, the jurisdiction of the flight crew. And I have seen through the years that the flight crew usually makes pretty good decisions about accommodating people that can't be too close together or 
an, an animal that may need a little bit more space. And I know that that has been one of the issues with um, miniature horses working as guide animals in the flying arena, that they can't lie down and fit in the way that a dog can. And even different of us in our community do a better job tucking our dogs up and under. And so I think, um, I guess personally, I would have preferred that it had been left a little bit more open so that the flight crews would have the ability to make decisions on a more individual basis. But I certainly do understand um, on one hand, the need for some uniformity. And if it was a huge problem, maybe I don't have enough information to know, to know why it needed to be uh, made more cut and dry than it than it had been handled in the past. People certainly should try a little bit harder in some instances to to tuck their dogs up under the seat in front of them the way we are mostly taught at our, our various guide dog schools. And, uh, and I the understand. tethering, I, I guess the tethering is it's sort of this, there are a few uh, situations where service animals need to maybe perform a task um, in in a range of motion that wouldn't encompass the leash length, but I, I maybe somebody else here has some good examples of why that right should have been preserved on an airline because I haven't thought about it that much and I'm not sure. And and again, those are items that um, the Department of Transportation is not requiring it, but they're giving airlines the leeway right. to require it. Um, if they deem necessary. So in, in my mind, it seems like we have some good opportunities to, to work with and educate and help train airlines on um, what should be acceptable and uh, what is you know, to the benefit of passengers and everyone's health and safety while traveling. Thank you for reminding us of that. <laughs> yeah. And Sheila Young, um, I think we have time for a few questions here, if you'd like okay, to. Okay, well, you've got a lot of questions. Oh, my. <laughs> I, I bet we do. That, this <laughs> should have been an hour and a half. <laughs> 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 All right, um, James, you may unmute. Hi, someone talking to me? Yes. Hello? Go ahead. Hi, James. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, we yes. can. Yeah, I have a couple of questions. First of all, I go to an airport. How are they supposed to determine what is a service dog and emotional support dog? I can bring a dog on, and this is my service dog, but it's really not a service dog. It's an emotional support dog. And how am I supposed to fill out the forms? And if I have to give my dog's name, I'll just give my dog's name Juno. <laughs> Sarah, Sarah, would you like mm -hmm. to take that? Uh, yes. Um, on these forms that Clark has explained, um, they were um, produced by Department of Transportation. And on each attestation form, one for the behavior of the dog, the other for the relieving itself, you sign there. There is the... Um, area where you know if you sign this and uh you could be under federal offense if you lied on this form so um 
those hopefully will distract people or you know uh, from saying that their uh, their pet was a you know a, a service dog and it really was an emotional support dog but um but by on these forms also they want your name uh where or who or how your dog was trained so you could put the guide dog school and um information such as that so and and, and this, also the flight uh uh-huh. oh, i was just gonna was, jump in as well sarah but go ahead oh and 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 also if I, the flight attendants they notice that a dog is is most likely not a service dog i believe that they can bring that to the attention of the other authorities and then they can question um and about your dog. deborah yes can you guys hear me yes, hi deborah Yes, I had um, I had one comment when we um, when we were talking about um, an airline banning a specific breed, and that is that um, I'm assuming that somewhere on the form the handler needs to attest to the behavior of a specific dog because. I know um, there's like one particular instance where um, I was walking in the Philadelphia area, like um, one building away from a guide dog handler and his dog. That um, and the dog came from a very well-known school, and the dog um, is a German Shepherd dog. And the dog happened to have a dog distraction that extended to the point where the dog would um, bark, growl, um, snarl, and um, and became very aggressive whenever it saw um, any other type of dog. Well, fortunately, it seldom saw another dog. Um, except when it saw me and my guide dog. But the dog would like go back on his like hind feet and it would like pull its handle towards me and my dog and it would like snarl and like it became very aggressive. And as long as my dog and I were not around, it was fine. But it ultimately had to call the school and say something and it turned out that the handler wanted a dog that was very protective um because of where the graduate lived but this just got out of hand so okay deborah let let can can you please yep. let them answer because we've yes. got many questions yeah so that, thank okay. you thanks deborah and on the forms it does um it does go to the individual uh, service animal and the judgments made by the airlines um, may only be based off of the specific behavior of an individual dog. Okay, Ray, you're next. Thank you. Um, hi, guys. Um, uh, good evening. Um, as many of uh, just a very small disclaimer, many people knew I know I work for a major airline, but this question is not for them, it's for me. Um, do we know why you guys have done a lot of advocacy in this area? Do we know why the airlines wanted uh, the 
to be allowed to ask for these forms? I know my employer is talking about it and I'm going to try to change their minds, but uh, why did the airlines want to be able to have these this documentation? I, I think I can speak to that. Uh, this is Melanie. Mm-hmm. If um, Because I, I know there were a lot, this isn't the first time it's come up. And I know that I've been in a number of meetings where the airlines discussed it. And while Sheila, I believe, said earlier that everybody kind of says informally that it isn't the legitimate service animals that are a problem, I think one of the concerns still remains that they are concerned that if people are determined to take pets on board, they'll find some other way to yeah, try to convince important. somebody that they are a legitimate yeah, service dog. And the major reason for the forms was to get people to sign the statement saying, you know, I recognize that uh, if I make any fraudulent representations on this form that I could be prosecuted, which is one of the things that you attest to. Um, and, And also they wanted information because if there was any incidents involving a dog biting someone or otherwise injuring someone or doing damage to the airplane, they wanted someone to contact. So I think those two things motivated them to hang on to the idea of please, please, please let us get get more information somehow from people. Um, Because (coughs) we all... (laughs) It isn't just emotional support animals, although that have been faked. Um, I'll just that that is what a lot of people hear the most, but it isn't the only disability that people have faked in order to try to get um, animals on pets on board. Okay, Clark, you have like five more questions and four minutes. How do you want? Yep, to let's do let's this? just let's keep rolling. We'll- See if we can take uh, one or two more here. Go right ahead. Melissa, you may unmute. Okay, I'm sorry. There you go. Um, That's okay. Now, yeah, great. Um, Okay, so my question, in particular, I, I, I'm interested in what the panelists think about this. But if I may, I would also like permission to open this question up to the airline employee. So. Those of us who have serious concerns about the forms, and we're in a situation right now where airlines have not, except for Alaska, have not publicly, to my knowledge, announced their new policies. And and maybe we still have sort of an opportunity to, as you put it, change their mind. So what, what I would like to know from what people think would be the best way to sell airlines on changing their mind. So how can we, what strategies can we use and come up with that would assuage, would would take care of the concerns of airlines enough that we could change their mind about these forms? Thank you. Sarah or Becky, would either of you like to, to start with this one? I have the question of the age because and <laughs> <laughs> why they want to do it. What yeah. I see is a better way of getting the information 
And I think a verbal attestation is a good place to start, similar to what the ADA allows. But if if there is some way uh, at check-in where if, you, if they want you to sign something, you can just sign it at the check-in desk, um, having answered those two questions, and then just be done with it. The airline knows who you are. When you book, they've got your name, your address, your birth date. Uh, all kinds of information about you already. Um, so, you know, to add in more information about your specific dog when the dog is specifically attached to you seems like a little bit more than than they should have to have. That's my initial thought. Okay, Deb. Uh, if I can Lewis. mention oh, okay. something I'm real sorry. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Also, these forms go into effect January 11th of this year. But, um, yes. as, yeah, so they haven't gone in effect yet, but... And that's a good point. How could we gather information and see if they could revise or change the forms? I guess they'd have to go back to the Department of Transportation, too. Exactly. Um, and we yeah. are here at the at the top of the hour. I think Melissa had the, the final question there. Um, as we just stated, these, these forms from the Department of Transportation, they were included in the, the final rule in the Federal Register. Um, so they, they are part of regulation now, but I assure you that ACB and GDUI will continue working with the Department of Transportation um, to try to improve this process as much as possible for our members and all service animal um, handlers and users going forward. And in terms of how can we work with the airlines, well, certainly ACB and GDUI um, can build bridges with the airlines, but we are all we are all consumers. Um, we are all their customers. So I think it, as much as possible, it, every opportunity that we fly is an opportunity to educate new people on what a, you know, a, a proud guide dog handler looks like, works like, uh, you know, how we operate. Um, so it's, that is certainly something that we can all do is, is lead by example on how um, and set that high bar. Uh, for for the rest of the world to follow. So I just want to thank the panelists here again this evening, Sarah Calhoun, Melanie Brunson, Becky Davidson, and Sheila Styron. And again, thank you to Sheila and Darrow and Cindy for organizing this event here tonight. And to everyone out there listening, keep advocating. Thank you.